When I started cutting trailers for other people's films, uh, it was kind of easy because I had seen a lot of trailers when I was a kid. I loved trailers. I was ruthless in just showing anything. I mean, if a major character got killed, it's okay, I'd put it in the trailer. If something, if there was some, some plot point that uh, ruined the movie but was good for the trailer, I'd put it in the trailer. Then it came time to make a trailer for my own movie that I directed, and I realized that I couldn't do it because I was saying, oh, God, I can't show this. Oh, we can't give this away. Oh, we worked awful hard to make this a surprise. Can't put this in. Unfortunately, the, the rubric is that you really are not the best guy to make your own trailer because there's just too many things going on that you want to hide. And, and the secret of trailers is just putting it all out there and trying to get people to fill the seats. Trailers that we did pictures for were, shall we say, of lesser quality. And uh, so it, it became imperative at times to slightly misrepresent the contents of the movie. The problem would come if the movie itself was badly photographed and looked bad or if it had really bad sound because you can't hide those things in a trailer unless you just don't, don't show them. So uh, on, a, on a couple of occasions there would be a movie where the photography would be just so dreadful that we would, we would do um, animations instead and stills and things that would uh, hide the fact that it was a, a really ropey looking movie. And, and uh, the same thing with the soundtracks. Sometimes they were very hollow and badly recorded and uh, we would either dub them ourselves or we would just cut out the sound altogether and just put music and sound effects. Well, a number of the movies that Roger was distributing were from overseas, and he had a, a particular connection with Sergio Santiago, who had a big operation going in the Philippines. And um, uh, some of the movies would come in, and, uh, and they would actually literally, the places we'd scotch-taped only on one side. And they, they would have to be extensively, extensively re-edited and, and re-dubbed and refinished to make them suitable to release in America. Uh, but a lot of times they just didn't have much plot. I mean, there was, wasn't much story. And so we um, uh, were pretty cavalier about just saying, okay, this is, this is not a movie about a Chinese hitman. It's a movie about uh, drug smuggling. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a scene in one of the pictures where they were, they were buying sugar or something. And so we, we, we did an optical zoom into it, and we called it the Deadly China White, which everybody was supposedly looking for. But it's really just a guy buying sugar. But, it, but you don't know that. You know, uh, the first time you see the trailer, you don't know that until you see the movie. And then and by the time you see the movie, chances are you may have forgotten was in the trailer, because the, the trailers weren't meant to be memorable. They were only meant to be um, something that would entice you to go see the movie. And because of the way the pictures were distributed at that time, which was that on the trailer on, on TV, or TV spots for like a week before the picture opened, then the picture would open, it would play for a week or so, and nobody would really remember that, that the exploding helicopter that you put into the trailer isn't really in the movie. Radio Drome. Welcome to the first Radio Drome of the new era, you know, the Trump era, which Cecil would yell at me, keep politics out of this, but welcome to the first episode of 2017. And that said, Cecil and Peter won't be here because we're recording this on the second of the year. So I got my, my limey friend who says it's not really an insult to call him a limey, Glenn Criddle, to set in. Yeah, I'm here, and no, it isn't, a, it isn't an insult to call me a limey. I don't think it is anyway. Limey bastard. 
Yeah, so, yes, that's more of an insult. <laughs> all right, so if you guys want, though, to help celebrate the new year, to bang in the new year, go to adamandeve.com. Use the promo code DROME, D-R-O-M-E, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free power O-ring, and free U.S. shipping. Just use the promo code DROME at adamandeve.com. What I wanted to talk to you about today, because... You're a student of film. You like older films. You like newer films. Have you noticed the way the advertising has changed on on films as we've gone through? Like, if you look at an, the original trailer for Universal's Dracula or Frankenstein or any of the old Universal monster movies, they're very bombastic and in-your-face and you will see astonishing events! And then you look at, like, their modern stuff, like the Mummy trailer, and it's a Mission Impossible movie. Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, the uh, the art of the trailer has has changed significantly over the years. Particularly, I mean, when I look at the kind of films that I generally look at, the yeah, European exploitation kind of scene, you see the trailers that used to happen for them, and they were like you know four or five minutes long, and pretty much uh, kind of showed you um, showed you the film in a very different way to the way that a uh, uh, modern certainly kind of american trailer would and yeah with your um example yeah absolutely those things have uh changed immensely it was it was like um what's the best way to put it it was almost like a like a fairground barker i actually thought the same thing it's very much a carnival barker kind of thing but mm. we also have to put it into the correct context when the old when the first universal monster cycle started television didn't even exist yet by telling people they were going to see a monster feasting on human flesh and sustaining itself on blood, that literally was something they'd probably never seen before. So we have to put it in the context that TV didn't even exist at this point. So that whole Carnival Barker idea, it's not as outrageous as it seems, huh? Well, no, I mean, that was the kind of way that things were marketed back in those days, especially when you're talking about the kind of films that uh, would particularly employ that kind of um approach i mean if you're talking about the kind of different different kind of films not just horror films that kind of stuff but like romance films they would do the same kind of thing but to see a love unencumbered yeah yeah they would really big up all that kind of stuff and uh, I, I think the romantic kind of stuff uh, would tend towards more kind of you know putting words up on the screen whereas you know i guess the horror ones were much more kind of in your face about it you look at them these days and it's very odd because i mean they weren't going to show you the bits and pieces why would they show you the bits and pieces of the film they show you a few very short clips not not like you have nowadays where you see pretty much all the money shots as trailers and the advertising progressed, obviously by the time you got to the 1960s, you started having radio spots. Mm -hmm. And the radio spots are just fantastic. I love the old, especially for the Grindhouse movies. They are so sleazy in the radio spots. Then you had the TV spots. The 1940s and 50s and 60s trailers were just kind of, they were almost literally a preview. You know, hmm. they would show you this movie has this actor, this actor, and this actor, and the plot is about this, this, and this. They weren't very bombastic, but they weren't very exciting either. You can't say that they were misleading. You look at a 60s movie trailer, it pretty much summed up the movie accurately, didn't it? Even if it was dull. Yeah, I think actually they they managed to get away with giving relatively little information. 
because the audiences sort of filled in a lot of the stuff in their head, especially when talking about kind of radio spots and all that kind of stuff. Obviously, you haven't got the visual medium to to show people stuff, so you're you're telling them what's in it. It's, did approach things very very differently back then and were they were they more honest uh, not necessarily so but i think it, i think that was more of an artifact of the fact that kind of sh- uh, told you as little as they could get away with if you know what i mean and uh that's obviously very different to now i'm trying to think what that like uh, i spit on your grave the uh, radio spots for that for instance were quite interesting and, and the ones for uh night of the living dead Would you sign your own death certificate? You must before you witness the electrifying Night of the Living Dead and Blood and Black Lace. You must free the theater from responsibility should your heart stop. Paralyzed in fright from the 12 deadly hours of the Night of the Living Dead, where strange, incredulous molecular mutation incites cadavers to arise live from their coffins to devour all human flesh. And the House of Horror, the House of Blood and Black Lace, a chic French fashion salon where seven breathtaking models will find their hideous, diabolical end. Night of the Living Dead, together with Blood and Black Lace, a terrifying evening with the undead. for like full cheese zombie you are in a room filled with your friends but they're all dead suddenly one by one they begin to move to live again the hell are they zombie how can we stop here take this zombie they are decaying they are missing from their graves zombie it's shocking that's why no one under 17 will be admitted save me I know I heard that one, but I can uh, I can just get I've got it going in my head. I never really listened to the radio an awful lot uh, when I was uh, younger, so um, I, I kind of missed all that kind of stuff. I don't know if they were that big over here. Different, you've got to do with that kind of approach, and I guess the radio spots. You know, I mean, they had a very similar approach in many respects to the old, uh, the really old kind of creature feature type trailers. In that uh, they sort of offered up. Little snippets, uh, very vague snippets of what was going on. You will so see when a come... fish man raping women. <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah. And there's something which is just wonderfully, uh, I, I hate to say naive about it, but um, there's something quaint. a lot more kind of quaint. Yeah, I guess quaint is a good word for it about it, because the audiences were a lot less... Um, demanding of knowing exactly what it was they were going to go see if they if there was something which sounded like there might be something they'd want to go see then they were a bit more interested and that's what you had to do back then times have changed as the movies became more bombastic the trailers had to become more bombastic but you look at like a a 60s movie trailer they're Mm -hmm. boring they're dull they're bland but they tell you what the movie is about then Mm -hmm. when you get to the 70s especially when you're an exploitation movie the the trailer takes on a whole different meaning. We gotta be honest, as much as we love these genres, Glenn, the trailers are usually way better than the actual films. And that's because the trailers don't have to put in all of the padding scenes and all of the dialogue scenes that <laughs> go nowhere. They can literally get away with just, as you put it, the money shots. Ironically enough, a porn term. 
porn trailers are a whole different thing. If you've seen a 70s or 80s porn trailer from back when they played in theaters, they showed everything. I mean, seriously, they were like, like you mentioned, sometimes the, the European movies were five minutes long. The mm-hmm. porn trailers are five, six minutes long. They're full of cum shots and anal and all this. And it's like, do, why do I need to see the movie now? <laughs> I just jerked <laughs> off to the trailer. <laughs> Of course, I've um, experienced the uh, the porn movie trailers. Um, I, uh, now you've just put an image into my head, so thank you very much. But um, <laughs> I think when it comes to those kind of things, you know, with the older trailers, uh, the, yeah, I, I think a lot of the films, a lot of the trailers, much more pedestrian. Uh, and I'm thinking particularly of the Italian independent sort of films. The trailers for those were really hard work to sit through. And I've got a reasonably good attention span, and some of those really kind of test you. It's a, and it's a little bit weird. I don't know if you've ever seen the trailer for um, Suspiria, for instance. Yeah, I it's, have. That's yeah. It's bizarre. <laughs> it's really bizarre. There's there's a whole bunch of them like that, which were, were just uh, they, they tell you, you know, in very vague terms what was going on. In in some respects, they were a bit of a throwback. But my God, they would spend so much time doing it. And you kind of go, well, well, you could have done that. You told me all that information in about a fraction of the time. Dario Argento's films in general, the trailers from them were quite overbearing in, in some respects in just how much time it sort of demanded for what it would actually offer. You know, you'd constantly get that kind of um, title card would come up about every 30 seconds or so. And then they'd show you about another 30 seconds of um, part of the film, and then title card, another 30 seconds of title card. Very simple, very basic kind of construction to these things, unlike today. <laughs> when you look at like a lot of the exploitation trailers, they were longer. Now you look at exploitation trailers, I mean, from the 2000s and up, you look mm-hmm. at these direct-to-DVD trailers, and they're 45 seconds, they're a minute long. And I think you've gone too much in the opposite direction. They're too short now. I, I think they've I, I, overcompensated because it's like, okay, when your trailer's just over a minute long, you're not really selling me too much. It doesn't need to be five minutes long, but it needs to be more than a minute. I think it depends on the content, really. I mean, um, certainly the cutting of trailers and, and stuff has become a lot more sophisticated as it's gone along, to the point that you can actually get over an awful lot of information in a very short time. And let's face it, there's an awful lot of films out there that don't have an awful lot of plot. So, you know, when it, when it comes to kind of uh, giving out a trailer, sometimes shorter is a bit better. Along that line, though, sometimes, especially... Now, I'm not one of these spoiler guys where, oh my god, you've spoiled the movie for me. I know the ending. Oh my god, now I can't... I don't, why even see the movie? I'm not one of those kind of people. Like, I'm thinking of, like, the trailer for 10 Cloverfield Lane. It's only, mm-hmm. like, a minute 20... I loved the movie, by the way. The trailer gives you nothing. I literally did not (laughs) want to see this movie based on the trailer because they Mm. were so afraid of giving away spoilers in the trailer, they had nothing to show you. I almost didn't go see this movie. You know know why I, I went and saw this movie? Because someone gave me a spoiler, and I'm like, oh, that's what the movie's actually about? (laughs) <laughs> Maybe if that had been in the fucking trailer, I would have been more excited. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, trailer making is a very strange um, art form. It is very much about um, finding that balance between telling too much or showing too much and uh, showing too little. But you still have to tell me what the movie is. Ex- You've seen t- the 10 Cloverfield Lane trailer, right? 
with a movie like 10 Cloverfield Lane, you can't just have a pop song playing with random shots of people doing nothing in the trailer. That's all that trailer is. And then it ends with a, no, don't open that door! And it's like, okay, you've told me absolutely zero. Why should I want to go see your movie? Okay, the movie's been out for a while, I think I'm safe to say. The movie is about a fucking alien invasion. That would have sold me on the movie! Yeah, um, I think it does help if you give enough information to actually kind of make some sort of judgment on but, what but, it is but, you're but, actually about to go watch. But see, the, the thing with 10 Cloverfield Lane was they were so afraid of people finding out because mm. you don't find out it's an alien invasion until the last 20 minutes. They were so afraid of people going, well, that's the plot twist. We can't put the plot twist in there. Okay, there is that. But you also have to give me an idea of what this movie is about. And sometimes that's a very, very delicate balance. Like, there was a recent movie from 2015 called Synchronicity, which Mm -hmm. just blew me away. It was an amazing movie, one of the smartest time travel movies I've ever seen, one of the most clever things I've seen in decades. And yet, the time travel aspect happens in the first 20 minutes, so I don't really consider that a spoiler. At the same time, the trailer goes so far to try and not tell you it's a time travel movie, it's an awful, awful trailer. And I would not have rented this movie if I had seen the trailer first. I rented the movie because I saw the box, and I'm like, Michael Ironside's the villain? Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, that's a, that's one uh, way of selling your film, isn't it, really, is having the style that uh, people really, really want to go see. But certainly, you know... um when a trailer, I, I can understand, like you say, that they don't want to blow the big moment of the film. And that can be very difficult with certain films. Uh, you know, you, you have a film like uh, From Dust Till Dawn, for instance. That moment that the film switches is kind of integral to the enjoyment of the film. But at the to- same time, you would, if you thought you were, if they ad- had advertised it as a straight crime thriller and then it turned into mm. a vampire movie, you'd be pissed off. At the same time, if it were advertised as a straight vampire movie, you'd be pissed off for the first 45 minutes going, where's the f***ing vampires? Yeah, yeah, and it can be a very difficult call with those kind of things. And to some extent, when you've got something which is like that, you need to be able to kind of... I, I don't know. You need to be able to play the trailer in such a way that doesn't really kind of give the game away, but you know, it has some sort of clue that something's going to happen. And that's difficult to do. I mean, it's one of the things when people complain about trailers that, you know, it's not a good trailer. It's a bad trailer, or this, that, or the other. Very difficult, I think, to appreciate the fact that you are trying to condense a film down to a very, very small uh, section of um, video, basically, that that's not going to give away all the good stuff because if you go too far like you say that's a problem if you don't go far enough and people don't come to see you and yeah there are those films like you say that that, that just really i don't know how you even approach doing that kind of stuff unless you you go down the line of um just just teasing towards the audience that there is something there for the horror audience for instance or there's something there for the uh romance fans or whatever but that's the art of the trailer, uh, trailer maker. And that's a very specific kind of filmmaking in its own right, in my opinion. What about when they're outright duplicitous? Now, mm. this has come up with two recent movies, but this has been happening for quite some time. You've got certain levels of duplicity when it comes to a trailer. Obviously, you want to sell this film. You want people to go and see this movie. What about, like, you brought up From Dust Till Dawn? Have you seen the trailer for From Dust Till Dawn 2, Texas Blood Money? Um, no, I haven't, actually. 
the trailer plays up that Bruce Campbell and Kimberly Amber Thiessen are starring in this movie. They have cameos, and they're not even in the movie. They're in a movie that Robert Patrick's character is watching in the movie, and they're in less than two minutes of screen time. To literally list them as starring is very, very duplicitous to me. Mm, yeah. These people have glorified cameos, and they're not even part of the plot proper. So no, <laughs> don't you dare tell me Bruce Campbell stars in From Dust Till Dawn 2. He yeah. happens to show up in a scene. That's not the same thing. No, I mean, that's pretty disgusting behavior on behalf of the people who made the trailer. I, I can't stand that, that level of uh, lying to your audience to, to drag him in. Because they know that, uh, particularly Bruce Campbell, because everybody by that point knew what From the Still Dawn was about. They were relying on the fact that everybody that they were going to know Bruce Campbell and go, oh, it's great, it's a Bruce Campbell film. And then, yeah, to do that is, that's beneath shitty, in my opinion. Um, I, I can't stand that kind of dishonesty when it comes to those sorts of things. Still happened to, um, uh, some extent with a lot of the trailers that we've seen around these days. Things that are in the trailer that aren't even in the film itself. At least he was in that film, I guess. <laughs> Okay, well, what about that executive decision? Mm -hmm. That was sold as a Steven Seagal movie. Yeah. And, yeah, he dies 40 minutes into the two-and-a-half-hour movie. That was a nice plot twist, because I didn't see that coming, because at that point, Seagal had never died in one of his films before. But, yeah, and I enjoyed that bit. But <laughs> is, is it fair to have sold that as a Steven Seagal film when it's just an ensemble film that Steven Seagal is a cast member of. Because if you go back and look at that trailer, he is mm -hmm. heavily featured in that trailer. And the producers knew full well his character dies relatively early. Mm -hmm. But this was at the height of Seagal's pop culture awareness. Was that just crash marketing, or was that good marketing? I think it was good marketing in some respects. Um, it's a little dishonest, but I can actually forgive that as those things go, because he was in a significant part of the film. It's not like he, it's not like the Bruce Campbell thing where he is on for five minutes and then, you know, not even related to the actual story itself. He is actually an integral part of that story. And, you know, the events that happen are, yes, it's earlier than you would imagine, but um, I, I, I can, I can forgive him for that. It's, it's cheeky. You know, what's really funny about that trailer going mm -hmm. back to a time when, Kurt Russell and Steven Seagal are in the same movie, and Seagal is the named star. <laughs> ah, the 90s, yeah, Look what he's huh? doing now. Yeah, look what he's doing now. Oh, my God. I've never been much of a Seagal fan. Where he is now is just, like, kind of, it's mind-boggling. You've got that kind of duplicity, but you've also got, like I said, two modern, two movies that are out right now in theaters are being just torn apart by critics for how massively deceptive they were sold. One mm -hmm. is Passengers, where it's sold as star-crossed lovers and these people in this situation they can't control. It's sold as a love story. It is a mean, vicious, woman-hating film about a psychotic man who basically murders a woman over a length of time for his own sick, selfish needs. Mm. That is not the movie that's advertised in the trailer. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I'd have to agree there. I mean, um, the, the, I mean, the movie itself paints Jennifer Lawrence as somehow a bitch for not forgiving Chris Pratt for murdering her. <laughs> that's probably overstating it in some respects, but I do get where you're going with it. Um, 
yeah, you don't get that from the trailer at all. And I, I, I would say, yeah, it does paint a, that film as being something quite different to what it actually is. That's a pretty big bait and switch, though. It, I know a lot of people, I've, I've heard from a lot of people that came out of that movie hating it because that was not the movie they thought they were going to see. <laughs> I'd probably be quite happy about that, to be quite honest with you. It actually sounds more interesting than the trailer does. Well, the original <laughs> script, the original John Spate script that had been bouncing around for years actually was a straight-up horror movie. You know, oh, it was that, a horror movie in space where he was stalking her. But that they toned all it. that down because, you know, Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence. You know, why why actually have an interesting script? And <laughs> The other one that's going around right now is Collateral Beauty, which thankfully is being called one of the worst movies of the decade because it is. But watch those trailers. It's sold as a somewhat goofy but endearing, heartfelt tale of dealing with loss and overcoming your your emotions to find your better self. The movie, in actuality, is a mean, cynical, just viciously venomous movie that that treats loss as something that needs to be just put a, that needs to be compartmentalized and put away. It is one of the most mean-spirited movies I've seen in decades, even more than a Serbian film. And it, <laughs> you watch those trailers, it's all uplifting, and Will Smith finds how to deal with his loss. The trailers don't tell you that, the, the trailers don't tell you anything about how just venomous and mean and cynical this actual movie is. It's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Um, how they can actually make a trailer do that. Um, I think one of the, the, the best parodies I've seen of a trailer was, um, Shining. Have you ever seen it? It's, the, it's, it's a parody trailer of The Shining. I think it's called Shine, actually. And they, they made it into a romantic com, not romantic comedy, a kind of, it was a drama about, about a writer and his son who, I, I, uh, I've, I've seen, not, not that one, but I've seen ones like that, like where Sleepless in Seattle is cut to make it look like a horror film. Stalker film, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. I've, I've, I've seen those. While those are clever, I think they're disingenuous as well. The same kind of disingenuous as the people who cut the real Passengers and Collateral Beauty trailers. There has to be a conscious decision made. Like for Collateral Beauty at Warner Brothers, somebody went, nobody's going to like this movie. This movie's a piece of shit, and it's going to piss people off, but we still got to get people to see it. Let's mm -hmm. just take some of these elements, and we can manipulate it. Trailers are manipulation. There's a degree, like like Suicide Squad. When those trailers came out, everyone was so excited. I think Warner Brothers committed straight-up fraud by including scenes in the trailers that they knew at that point were already cut. Like all those Jared Leto Joker scenes, they mm -hmm. were still showing in TV spots and trailers long after those scenes had been cut out of the film. They knew that they were showing you scenes that were not in the movie. To me, that is fraud. Oh, it's incredibly dishonest, because it's one thing, like, when you see the original Alien 3 trailer, not, not the mm -hmm. teaser where this time it's on Earth, the, the first trailer, half of that movie only appears in the director's cut. Okay, fine. They hadn't locked down the final cut yet. For Suicide Squad, they had already locked down a final cut, and then said, we've got all these cool scenes, eh, put him in the trailer. You just know, because they really did big up uh, Jared Leto's part in the film. There was a hell of a lot of buzz about him as the character, and everybody was really keen to see what was going on. I think particularly considering 
the damnable state that the DC films were in at the point, at even at that point. They needed that, Suicide Squad they, to, to try and right that ship, and it did not. Uh, and exactly, but the thing is, the one thing everybody was really kind of excited for was Jared Leto. And, of course, they shoved a load more of that in there, despite the fact that he had very little to do in that film, really. And, and, well, uh, and, and, and in all honesty, after having seen the film, it was probably good his stuff was cut, because his Juggalo Joker is probably <laughs> the worst interpretation ever put on the screen. And, and, and that's even worse than Cesar Romero. I mean, the thing is, I didn't even, I didn't mind it. Um, I hated Joker. I thought it was, Joker. A, it was a very, it was a very different take on it. I was quite willing to sort different of give it a chance. Different and stupid, there's a very stuff, thin but, line. Uh, that aside from anything, I mean, like you say, they, they clearly knew that he wasn't going to have as big a role as people were expecting, yet they still cut that trailer to expand his role, at least his perceived role in the film. And yeah, that's deeply exploitative. Isn't it funny though? Isn't, um, I mean, trailers really are the ultimate exploitation film when it comes down to it. Cause that is their one and only purpose is to exploit the audience and to try to coerce them into coming to see your film. But, but you can't lie. Like, like with the, like with Rogue One trailer, all of those scenes that do not appear in the film at all and won't unless they release a specific different cut of the film because there are scenes that cannot appear in the film as it is because we know 40% of that movie was reshot. You go, okay, like the Alien 3 situation. Fine, you hadn't locked down the cut yet, except they'd locked down the cut by the time they put up the third trailer, which mm-hmm. still is loaded with scenes that are not in the film and cannot be in that version of the film. That's just Disney going, we know Star Wars fans are going to go see this anyway. Just put them in. I don't know. I mean, to some degree, I think a lot of the stuff that was in there wasn't necessarily uh, uh, stuff that was going to damage the film if it wasn't in the film, if you know what I mean. With Rogue One, though, it leads to a completely different third act. You've got Mm -hmm. all those scenes of Jin and Caspian on the beach, which leads to a, you know, and they're carrying the Death Star plan. So clearly the whole battle to the to the uplink tower is completely different. You have different Darth Vader in totally different settings. So he had a bunch of scenes cut. You've got this Dawn going with the wind, walking through the wounded battle of the Imperial, just, you know, with his cape flowing. And it's like, okay, the entire thing takes place during the day. So this night battle, and he's already dead by the time it comes to night, it leads you to believe there was a totally different third act originally. Yeah, you're quite possibly right, but I don't think, you know, certainly from um, the audience's point of view that they would have looked at the film and gone, uh, oh, this is completely different based on the trailer. I mean, certainly there was a tonal thing, I think, with the trailer, and and certainly some of the dialogue that was in the trailer was different to what was in the film. But I don't think that was to the point that you go, oh, my God, I've just seen a completely different film, until you've sort of seen the film and then you sort of look back and then kind of do a comparison. You go, well, that wasn't in there, that wasn't in there, and that wasn't in there. So I, I wouldn't – although it is, you know, dishonest to some extent to not have the the stuff that's in the trailer in the film, I think in some cases it's not it's not too bad a thing. And, and to some degree, you know – it. it when you're talking about like a special effects shot and that kind of stuff, which gets thrown in that isn't in the film, at least you got to see it. You know, sometimes it's to the uh, detriment of no the film that it's not. But to it. Absolutely. I mean, sometimes it's to the detriment of the film that these things are not in there, but uh, sometimes not so much. Fine line, I think, between being dishonest and 
outright lying, if you know what I mean. When it comes to these things, I mean, I, I didn't go to uh, Rogue One, for instance, and think I'd seen a completely different film to what I'd saw, uh, seen in the trailer. I didn't didn't feel like I'd, I'd walked into something like the wrong screen or something like that. Uh, like you do with some films, when you've walked into some films and you you see what's up there and you see what's on the trailer and you go, how the hell does one relate to the other? Um, certainly not. Rogue One, not so much. Now, obviously, trailers are about selling you something, as we've said again and again and again. But just how far can you go? As Joe Dante put it, when when he used to work for Roger Corman, he started out as Roger Corman's trailer editor. If you, you'll, you'll notice from that era, from the late 70s to the early 80s, almost every one of the trailers for a Roger Corman movie, whether it called for it or not, had an exploding helicopter in it. The same shot. And Roger Corman came up with this thing. I'm going to quote here, quoting from Roger Corman. There was one memorable moment when Joe showed me a trailer for a picture just before lunch. I said, Joe, it's all right, but it isn't quite as exciting as, as I would like it to be. He said, let me, on, let me work through it on lunch. I came back after lunch, and it was exactly the same trailer, trimmed a little bit, with an exploding helicopter. I said, Joe, that's an exploding helicopter from a war picture we shot in the Philippines two years ago. He said, well, don't you think it helps the trailer? It did. It was great. And I thought about it for a little while, and I figured there's no law that says every scene in a trailer has to be in the picture, so we left it in. After that, whenever Joe had a dull moment, moment in a trailer, he would add the exploding helicopter, unquote. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> is is that sleazy or is that I mean, typical Roger Corman? But or is that over the line? It, it's lying, um, obviously. I mean, it kind of depends to some degree on um, the integrity of the rest of the trailer to some extent. Yeah, I mean, it is. Let's face it, uh, outright lying to the audience. You know, that uh, adding that extra bit, but. Uh, God damn it, if it isn't funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't funny. But, I mean, like like with the Highlander Endgame trailer, there's all these exciting scenes in the trailer. Duncan and Connor jumping through a time portal and Kel stopping the sword with his hand in the air and the magic and the splitting and, and Duncan's hair, and Connor's head inside the bubble and the, the, the sniper picking off immortals and them slowly walking out of the exploding building. And none of that's in the film and it was never meant to be. Dimension actually shot those scenes, quote, to make the trailer more exciting. And they were actually sued in a class action lawsuit for fraud. Where's the line? Selling a film that, um, by a trailer that is entirely unrepresentative of the film, then that's definitely, you know, way past the line. I think, you know, the whole kind of helicopter thing, for instance, um, I, I can laugh it off because it's just, you know, it's one. It's shot. so Roger Corman though, too. Yeah, and and it's one shot, you know. I mean, it's not it's not a film, that, um, a trailer that is made up as a complete lie. But like with that example I gave earlier about the parody ones, you know, uh, you you could cut any film into into a trailer that is entirely unrepresentative, but is made up entirely of content of the film. It's a shame that there isn't a little bit more honesty in it, um, in, in general, in, in, in trailers and stuff like that. But we're talking about marketing people at the end of the day. I, you know, I think, yeah, they should be held to account to, on occasions where they absolutely outright lie. And when it comes to something like, um, the Highlander, for instance, that is so beyond the pale because they are selling a film that, that doesn't exist. Yeah. Literally I, I mean, l- literally, 
literally, to make the trailer more exciting. Yeah. Hey, assholes, how about making the movie more exciting, huh? Yeah. Yeah, you would think the priority would go into that. Glenn, Dimension spent an extra million dollars to shoot about 16 seconds of new footage for the trailer exclusively. Mm-hmm. That's asinine to me. Use that million dollars to make the film not suck. You know, that's the thing. It's um, The film should have been what was important. And I kind of wonder at what point it was that they decided that was the way to go. I'm, I'm assuming it was at the point that they looked at the film. Oh, shit. Yeah, um, Adrian Paul said those shots were way after the principal photography. I think Dimension saw that no cut of this film. Remember, there's like nine different released cuts of Highlander Endgame out there. Hmm. I think they saw this film is unsavable. We need to do whatever we can to still get people to go see it. I mean, Glenn, the final shot of the theatrical cut of the movie has got Duncan mourning over Connor's grave. And you're like, oh, look at that beautiful blue sky behind him and then the camera pans and you go that's a blue screen and you forgot to composite the fucking background in didn't you <laughs> that's in the movie oh my that's in God. there that was in the theatrical yeah. print of the movie they forgot to add oh, a special wow. effects shot <laughs> how how do you get that much incompetence into one film this is the same movie that literally repeats the same action scene they, they they didn't have enough coverage, I guess. The director screwed up. And there's a scene where Kel is fighting with Duncan. Then they have a scene later where Kel is fighting with Duncan again. And they use the exact same shot from 15 minutes earlier as a bridge scene. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> that is painful. So in, yeah. So I think Dimension was going, do whatever you have to do to get people to go see this. We don't care if they like it. Just get them to go see it. Wow. Uh, and you can sort of understand um, the motivation behind doing it, but it doesn't make him any less shits for doing it, really, does it? No, it that's, doesn't. That's incredible. But then we also need to talk about, l- l- like with Star Wars Rogue One, one of the reasons that all those scenes were in, the, especially the initial trailer, was the movie hadn't had its 40% of resho- reshoots yet. What we need to just... What happened, Glenn? Where it used to be... If it was a studio film, they'd release a trailer one to two months before it came out, back in the 70s and even the early 80s. And then that, And if it was an exploitation film, sometimes two weeks before the film came out, especially if it were like a Corman flick. And then that, that, that time period kept getting longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. Now we're literally... The first Suicide Squad trailer was a, almost a year before the movie came out. The, the new Mummy movie... The, the first trailer is almost a year and a half before the movie comes out. How or what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, uh, I kind of get the feeling that they're using the trailers as as a kind of screener, if you know what I mean, uh, like for testing audiences to see what the reactions are. Because by that point, you know, when you're talking about a year ahead of releasing, it gives you plenty of time to to tinker. And you've got the biggest screen cases, audience in the world when you've got, them on, you've got your trailer on YouTube. So I kind of get the feeling but, but there's Glenn, a little bit of that going on. Mm-hmm. Glenn, in a lot of cases, the movie is not even finished shooting yet, and they've already got a trailer out. Mm-hmm. Shouldn't, yeah. you know, you don't need to start advertising this movie a year before it comes out. Maybe shoot the damn movie first, then see what makes the best trailer. Yeah, and, I, you know, I mean, I'm surprised that they don't, worry about fatiguing the audience with that kind of behavior to be honest with you they already have um, that the trailers for trailers 
Mm-hmm. Look at how yeah. many times now when you've got a big movie coming out. I remember the Mummy trailer did this, the new Alien Covenant movie, any Marvel movie. They'll actually put out a 15 to 20 second teaser two or three days before the trailer drops on YouTube to go, the trailer's coming in two to three days. When did the trailer become this important that you have to have a teaser for the trailer? They make a big celebration about trailers coming out now, don't they? I mean, it is one of those things that you get exclusive trailer releases at uh, conventions and things like that and um, news articles that will kind of herald the, uh, the release of a trailer of a new big film. Um, on so-and-so a date. So, yeah, I mean, they've, they've become films in their own right. It's a very strange kind of uh, thing. And the thing is, <laughs> with the trailers, they're so much more disposable. So if they f*** up with those, then there's there's no real problem. But um, you know, with this extended kind of marketing thing that's going on, it's no surprise that the budgets for films have gone into the bloody, uh, far into the universe with um, costs and stuff like that. It's uh, because... The campaign's runs for so damn long. They go, oh yeah, well it cost us 40 million or 60 million or 80 million to, to do the advertising for this film. Can they go, yeah, well you were really, you were advertising it like almost two years in advance. So yeah, what do you expect? Then, then let's, let's go to this, this which is related to the advertising so far in advance. What about when you've got a, a, a tra- two different trailers that come out? They always call the first one a teaser, but when it's two and a half minutes long, it's a trailer. Like uh, with Skull Island, that first teaser that they released, amazing. I loved, it was very somber, it had this great 70s tone to it, because it takes place during Vietnam, it had this great late 60s, early 70s tone, it didn't show you too much, it had just enough dialogue to keep you interested. Awesome! Then a couple of months later, they released the second trailer, which is full of gags. And goofy characters, and giant CGI monsters, and I'm, and you're going, you know what? I'm actually not excited to see this movie anymore because that second trailer <laughs> totally killed the excitement that that first trailer had me going for. Yeah, I, and that's the thing, isn't it? Um, sometimes not showing stuff is um, more alluring than actually showing a load of stuff. John C. When- Riley's character in that second trailer totally is putting me off this movie. His character is clearly there to go, look at me, I'm the wacky comic relief! And it's like, okay, this is a Vietnam-era King Kong movie. You don't need wacky comic relief. No, I don't understand Hollywood's um, obsession with having to have comedy relief all the time. Although, you know, some of my own audience would probably be going, well, why do you complain about DC so much? But, um, yeah, like I say, I mean, when when you've got a trailer and, and you don't show... A heck of a lot. You just show enough just to kind of pique a bit of interest. Sometimes that's a much, much more powerful thing. For a teaser, that first Skull Island trailer Mm -hmm. teaser was damn near perfect. It had me intrigued. It had me excited. It set a tone for me. And that second trailer wrecked all of that. (laughs) I I literally am not excited for this movie anymore after that second trailer. Mm, Yeah. And I kind of wonder how the... uh, how the studios will react to that kind of, uh, your kind of reaction when they look at that, um, the feedback that they get off of that. And I'm not the only one. I, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, all of them were like, okay, that second trailer is not filling me with confidence. <laughs> I'm not the only one thinking that that second trailer is terrible and hopefully is less representative of the film than the first one was. 
I, I suppose one of the good examples of trailers it would be going back to um, Suicide Squad with the way that that kind of evolved. All three and of how- those trailers were magnificent. The, the way they used the music, the mm. editing, those trail, those first three trailers were goddamn masterpieces. Yeah, and they got me so pumped for that movie. And look how that actually kind of had an effect on the actual movie itself. Isn't that weird? Isn't that it weird? That the is. trailer trailer has basically defined what the movie is going to be. That's in, that's in a strange kind of way, scary. Yes. I, I think that's kind of the way that trailers are partly looked at by the studios these days. They might not admit it. But I think that's part of the reason why we get trailers so far ahead is is they can gauge the reaction to those trailers and tailor the film to that reaction. So when they looked at the Suicide Squad ones, which were fairly lighthearted, I wouldn't say necessarily kind of comic, but um, they seemed kind of fun, especially yeah. in contrast to Batman versus Superman. Exactly, you know, I mean, especially coming off the back of Batman uh, versus Superman, which was. Just a miserable fucking experience, in my opinion. But, um, you know, there was a massive amount of audience reaction that, that kind of reflected that. And when they did the Suicide Squad trailer and everybody was like, that's much more like it. That's, you know, it doesn't have to be kind of like, um, you know, wacky zany comedy, but, you know, having a sense of humor was very important to an awful lot of people and, and everybody reacted really, really well to it. Also with the Suicide Squad trailers, all three of them had very upbeat up-tempo songs that they were cut to, which very much influences your mood. I think particularly the kind of music that they had there would, you know, it's it's that whole Guardian of the Galaxy kind of mentality that seems to be going on at the moment, but um, not that I think that's necessarily a bad thing. It's a little bit of a jukebox sort of thing going on, but I hope that doesn't get um, worn to oblivion, which it probably will because it's Hollywood. In trailer format particularly, you've got such a nice, small package in which you can be very very dynamic with which you you can't really sort of sustain across the length of a film necessarily but uh when you've got all that kind of stuff and there's a lot of good stuff in some in, in suicide squad for instance that you can just kind of compress into that that little space and i don't think they they showed too much it was a bit dishonest like we said with jared leto and and the likes i don't think it was massively dishonest about what it could have been and what it probably should have been it's just a shame that they kind of like uh, made it a bit of a miserable sack of shit again. But um, hey, and obviously this is a retrospect thing. You have a, an amazing movie that is a a genre definer for when it came out. Something that was a total game changer when it came out. Something like Tron, where both trailers are god awful, but you feel for the people at Disney who had to try and cut them because. How the hell else were you going to sell Tron to a 1983 audience? Most of your audience didn't even know half of the terms, the computer terms being used. So how do we sell this movie to an audience when this movie was a game changer in retrospect, just not, you know, in 1983? I can't imagine how in 1983 they could have made trailers that didn't suck for Tron <laughs> and, and, and still get an audience to understand it. Yeah, so it's going to be those very difficult ones that you have to try to, communi- uh, to communicate. And I think uh, something like Tron in particular, when you're talking to uh, about kind of uh, talking to an audience that won't necessarily understand the bits and pieces, the mechanics of what's going on, to some extent you have to rely on the visual kind of um, aspect of what's going on. You know, I mean, with, with Tron, that's a very big part of the film's personality is its look. And I think something like Inception, for instance, 
another film it's very i know you don't like it but i mean it's one of those films that uh it's a very difficult concept to try and kick over in a couple of minutes i mean that's why it's such a waffly film you know there's so so much it has to bloody explain so what did they do they they kind of concentrated on on certain shots and moments that were spectacular that got people kind of going what is that about you know and that's the kind of approach you have to take in those sort of respects i think any any trailer that tells what the entire film is is uh probably for a film that isn't very good terminator, <laughs> terminator genesis uh, where the whole john connor terminator thing is revealed in the trailer Oh, you kind of love those moments when they can, they, they give you the last shot. I've seen several trailers that, that give you the last shot of the film. You Quarantine. Kind of go, the poster is the last shot of the movie. <laughs> kind of go, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> well, okay, then, then, then let's go out on this. What about when, like with Tron, with Tron was not a, you know, box office success then, but when you have a movie that literally changed Hollywood and you go back and look at the first trailer and you go, how did this ever get people in seats? And like Star Wars, that first Star Wars trailer is so poorly cut together. The narration is, I mean, in a galaxy far, far away. The, the narrator seems bored. The trailer is a bland, boring pastiche of random scenes. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. <laughs> 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. Coming in too fast! The story of a boy, a girl, and a universe. big, sprawling space saga of rebellion and romance. It's a spectacle, light years ahead of its time. I am C-3PO, human-cyborg relations, and this is my counterpart, R2-D2. Hello. It's an epic of heroes. and aliens from a thousand worlds Star Wars a billion years in the making and it's coming to your galaxy this summer. I look at that first Star Wars trailer and go, I don't know how anyone went to see this in 1977. I'm glad they did, but I don't know how they did based on this crap. Yeah, uh, sometimes it's... Um... Sometimes it's very difficult, I think, when you've, you've got uh, something that the trailer editors don't know what it is they're dealing with. And I think that was probably the case with something like that. I think um, the namesake of this particular program, uh, Radiodrome, Videodrome, is another fairly good example of a very weird trailer. The original Amiga animation trailer? 
Yeah, it's, it's that, kind of... That's a, it's so visually striking, though. It, it doesn't is. tell you a damn thing about no. what the movie's about, but it's it's an amazing little visual piece of two minutes of animation. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. When you've got um, uh, a film that is very difficult... Like I say, it's very difficult to communicate because uh, you can't get over the concepts in a couple of minutes. Sometimes you do have to kind of go down that line. I mean, Star Wars kind of just, just kind of... I, they had no idea what they had on their hands anyway. I don't think the studio is Star basically Wars, did. Is, is Star Wars basically the biggest fluke movie of all time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they really just did not know what they had on their hands. I mean, didn't realize it was going to be such a hit. They had that uh, they thought they just had this sort of throw-out kind of film. Uh, you throw it out, see what sticks, we'll get a bit of money back, and then hopefully that's it. I mean, that's why it's such a self-contained film. Again, like, I think it's like with The Matrix and things like that, you know, the first one had to be a self-contained film because they didn't know what they had and they didn't know how the audience was going to deal with it. And that but was then, another trailer which was which was a little bit kind of off. But then you also have ones where you look back at the trailer and you go, this was so inventive for something mm-hmm. like the original Alien trailer, the one with no dialogue that just has the noises to random scenes that's such an amazing amazingly unique trailer for 1979 i don't think anything had tried that type of advertising before and i remember i was only four at the time i remember my mom telling me that people were super excited about that what about when the trailer breaks all of the rules that i mean alien is it's is a very good example i remember seeing that years before i actually got to see the film it is an extraordinarily powerful trailer, and I think it is partly because it doesn't tell you a heck of a lot. It doesn't show you. It doesn't a heck even of a have lot, a line of dialogue. No, no, but it's got that. It's got that heartbeat. It's got the the real discordant kind of uncomfortable sounds going on, and it's got a. It's got pacing up the arsehole. It really does. It's it's it's, it's just a masterpiece of editing. That's the thing with it. It tells you just enough to go. I know this is going to be a scary film. And it seems to be set in space. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, and the title's Alien. So um, you put a few little pieces of the puzzle into place, and it doesn't spoil a damn thing. And that's amazing. It's such a such a simple, effective piece of work that you kind of look at the um, complexity of a lot of trailers these days, and you look at that, and then you go, "That's that was so much more effective than most of the stuff you, you will see. I also think that trailers nowadays have become too formulaic. They all have the horn and then the fades and and then you, and then right, and then right before the title, you have a bunch of very quick, 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 quick cuts and fades to black. Uh Then the title comes up and then there's always, especially if it's a horror movie, one last ah after the title before it does the final fade to black. They are so formulaic, you can time them now. Yeah, you know what the what the most irritating one for me is is when they put up the words that the actors are speaking in it. When they when they kind of like uh, it's almost like subtitling, but it's not. But they uh, no no the actors... no, no it, it's not subtitling. It's almost like in a silent film, the characters would talk, you'd see their mouths moving, and then the text would come up. Yeah, that's it's it's, it's, just... it's like an old silent film. God, that really just racks me off something rotten. That does. It's it's. <laughs> Was it Passengers? I think it was. In every word, every fucking word that came out of their mouth appears on the screen. And you're just going, my God, that's just pretentious as all hell. And that, if anything, turned me off of the um, of wanting to go to watch the film because I'm looking at that going, wow, that's just stupendously irritating. 
And, you know, I mean, there's been plenty of films, uh, the trailers, I think, have um, turned me away. And some of which I've eventually gone and seen and went, actually, that was not too bad. But, oh, my God, that that as a trope in trailers, that's just the one that really kind of makes me want to hurl stuff at the screen. We We have to finish up here. So if people would want to see a trailer for where they could see you, where would they go? Oh, well, you can find um, a couple of my own trailers on uh, my YouTube channel at LampyMan101. Find me at CynicalCelluloid.com and TheGrindHouseChannel.com and uh, Frankly Green Bay. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. Contact this show at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.